Today we continue our series with a message entitled, We Believe in the Biblical View of Marriage. We're starting a little early. We will finish on time. We will walk through this message today. As we start, I just have to say to you, this summer the Supreme Court made a decision in favor of same-sex marriage. I stand here before you today torn in my emotions with a message that is heavy on my heart. On the one hand, I am sad. I watched rainbow flags fly through cities all across the country. Rainbow-colored Facebook profiles filled my newsfeed. Rainbow lights even covered the White House. I couldn't help but consider that many knew little of what the rainbow symbolizes. I'm sad that this symbol of God's grace would be, perhaps at the instigation of the prince of this world, defiantly waved in the face of our Creator as if to say, we dare you to break your promise. I'm sad because ignorantly or pridefully, some have given themselves over to their own sinful inclinations. I understand this temptation. In fact, I understand it all too well because I struggle with my own sinful nature making constant efforts to overcome the temptation of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, I fail more often than I care to admit, but I never make peace with my sin, and I suspect you too understand this struggle. Sin is the great democratizer. We all experience it, but God expects us to resist it. I'm sad because countless children, including my own, will be affected by the trajectory of our culture and will know a much darker, more sinful world than I ever knew. I'm sad because some of you, my beloved students, may face persecution for your faith in your lifetime. I'm sad because the good news of Jesus Christ is perceived by some as bad news of disapproval or even worse, as hate speech. And I want everyone to accept and experience the gracious free gift of salvation. Yet on the other hand, I also have hope. I have hope because Jesus Christ cannot be put back into the grave. I have hope because God still sits on his throne and he still controls the hearts and minds of the rulers of this earth. I have hope because the gospel that liberated me from my full speed, hell-bent, sinful rebellion still rescues sinners from their rejection of God today. I have hope because cultural Christianity will no longer send people sleepwalking into hell with false assurance. Now more than ever, there will be a clear line of demarcation between those who follow Christ and those who don't. I have hope because God's kingdom is forever and our time on this earth is not. In church the Sunday after the Supreme Court decision, we sang a mighty fortress is our God. With newfound meaning, this song reminded me that the struggle of our time is the struggle of all time. It's a cosmic battle with only God's kingdom standing forever. So in our small skirmish of this spiritual war, we must render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. But we will not and cannot render unto Caesar that which is God's. God ordained marriage, and no one except the Creator has the right to redefine it. Therefore, as long as I serve as president of Cedarville University, we will contend that marriage that God ordained marriage as one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life, representing the gospel union between, between Christ and the church. 
Along with many other evangelical leaders, I have affirmed a statement that articulates well our position at Cedarville. This statement is entitled, Here We Stand, an Evangelical Declaration on Marriage. I have it for you on the screens. I want to read that to you this morning. As evangelical Christians, we dissent from the court's ruling that redefines marriage. The state did not create the family and should not try to recreate the family in its own image. We will not capitulate on marriage because biblical authority requires that we cannot. The outcome of the Supreme Court's ruling to redefine marriage represents what seems like the results of a half century of witnessing marriages decline through divorce, cohabitation, and a worldview of almost limitless sexual freedom. The Supreme Court's actions pose incalculable risks to an already volatile social fabric by alienating those whose beliefs about marriage are motivated by deep biblical convictions and concern for the common good. The Bible clearly teaches that enduring truth that marriage consists of one man and one woman. From Genesis to Revelation, the authority of Scripture witnesses to the nature of biblical marriage as uniquely bound to the complementarity of man and woman. This truth is not negotiable. The Lord Jesus himself said that marriage is from the beginning in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. So no human institution has the authority to redefine marriage any more than a human institution has the authority to redefine the gospel, which marriage mysteriously reflects, Ephesians 5, 32. The Supreme Court's ruling to redefine marriage demonstrates mistaken judgment by disregarding what history and countless civilizations have passed on to us. But it also represents an aftermath that evangelicals themselves sadly are not guiltless in contributing to. Too often, professing evangelicals have failed to model the ideals that we so dearly cherish and believe are central to gospel proclamation. Evangelical churches must be faithful to the biblical witness on marriage regardless of the cultural shift. Evangelical churches in America now find themselves in a new moral landscape that calls us to minister in a context growing more hostile to a biblical sexual ethic. This is not new in the history of the church. From its earliest beginnings, whether on the margins of society or in a place of influence, the church is defined by the gospel. We insist that the gospel brings good news to all people, regardless of whether the culture considers the news good or not. The gospel must inform our approach to public witness. As evangelicals animated by the good news that God offers reconciliation through life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, we commit to the following to respect and pray for our governing authorities even as we work through the democratic process to rebuild a culture of marriage, Romans 13, 1 through 7. The truth about biblical marriage in a way that brings healing to a sexually broken culture, affirming the biblical mandate that all persons, including LGBT persons, are created in the image of God and deserve dignity and respect. We commit to love our neighbors regardless of whatever disagreements arise as a result of conflicting beliefs about marriage. To live respectfully and civilly alongside those who may disagree with us for the sake of the common good. And to cultivate a common culture of religious liberty that allows the freedom to live and believe differently to prosper. The redefinition of marriage should not entail the erosion of religious liberty. In the coming years, evangelical institutions could be pressed to sacrifice their sacred beliefs about marriage and sexuality in order to accommodate whatever demands the culture and law require. We do not have the option to meet those demands without violating our consciences and surrendering the gospel. 
we will not allow the government to coerce or infringe upon the rights of institutions to live by their sacred belief that only men and women can enter into marriage. The gospel of Jesus Christ determines the shape and tone of our ministry. Christian theology considers its teachings about marriage both timeless and unchanging, and therefore we must stand firm in this belief. Outrage and panic are not the responses of those confident in the promises of a reigning Christ Jesus. While we believe the Supreme Court has erred in its ruling, we pledge to stand steadfastly, faithfully witnessing to the biblical teaching that marriage is the chief cornerstone of society designed to unite men, women, and children. We promise to proclaim and live this truth at all cost, with convictions that are communicated with kindness and love. So how do we here at Cedarville respond to what's happening in our society? I recognize that in our audience today, we have no less than four categories of beliefs. The first, you know where you stand and why on either side of the issue. The second, you know where you stand but are are not able to articulate exactly why. The third, you have sincere questions either because you wonder what the Bible really teaches, you have been influenced by experience or other reasons, with friends or relatives engaged in same-sex attraction, some of you struggle to reconcile loving others with standing for biblical truth. Fourth, you are currently struggling personally with the temptation of same-sex attraction. I cannot present a comprehensive response to all four of those areas today. But in the time remaining, I want to try to provide the desired tone and the biblical foundation for how we should think and respond at Cedarville University. We must not compromise our stand for biblical truth. Yet, we must not trivialize questions with cliche answers that rarely demonstrate compassionate conviction. We must not speak flippantly. We must not tweet or post on Facebook hate-filled words as we remember that God created all mankind in His image and every one of us has fallen short of His glory. We must remember that homosexuality is not the issue. Sin, the great equalizer of us all, is the issue and Jesus Christ is the answer. God desires that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. So we speak as statesmen, as ambassadors for Christ, imploring mankind, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We must lovingly walk through the positive case for biblical marriage. We must demonstrate how marriage pictures the gospel and how all corruptions of biblical marriage, including premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, divorce, polygamy, bestiality, or homosexuality distort God's perfect plan and present a flawed representation of the gospel. We must listen with genuine, heartfelt concern, recognizing that struggling with a temptation differs greatly from acting out on that temptation. So to all students desiring growth and struggling with temptation, we pray for you. We desire to disciple you. We want to rejoice with you in victory and to cry with you through heartache, to laugh with you through the good times and to walk through the deep waters of bad times alongside you. If you need help, please see a faculty member or staff member that you trust or go see our student life and Christian ministries area as they are equipped to help you through these issues.
For the next few minutes, I want us to look at what the Bible says about marriage. If you're taking notes, you can write some of these verses down. We won't have time to spend much elaboration on each of them, but I encourage you to go back and study. If you have more questions, I will post recommendations of various books on my website later this week for you. As we begin this view of the biblical view of marriage, we start in the very beginning in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, which I have for you on the screens. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2, 21 through 25 says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A few points of elaboration on this. God made man. In fact, it says God created repeatedly. We did not evolve and we owe God our very existence. God made both man and woman in his image. This cannot be underestimated. We are image bearers of the king and our worth is not found in our gender, our sexual orientation, or the pleasures of sexual fulfillment. Our worth flows from being created in the image of God. And we'll talk about that more in a coming message in a few weeks. God established marriage one man and one woman who leave father and mother to become one flesh. God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. This establishes the most basic unit of society, which the Bible refers to from this point on as husband and wife in the institution of marriage. Just after this in Genesis 3, we see the bad news from which all other bad news flows. Mankind rejected the creator, sinned against God, And all of the sons and daughters of Adam from that point forward inherit a corrupt nature. By Genesis 4, we see Lamech from the ungodly lineage of Cain, who is described as having multiple wives and being a murderer. It does not take man long to distort God's plan, but just because the Bible mentions distortions does not mean it endorses them. We see other distortions like polygamy in prominent Old Testament heroes like Jacob in Genesis 29, 28. Gideon in Judges 8.30, David in 2 Samuel 12.8, Solomon in 1 Kings 11.3, and others. But we also see that David's sin with Bathsheba resulted in judgment, and Solomon's wives turned his heart away from God. The Old Testament presents one man, one woman union as God's ideal. See, for example, Deuteronomy 17.17, Proverbs 12.4, Proverbs 18.22, Proverbs 19.14, or 31, 10 through 31, Psalms 128, 3. The New Testament also presents monogamy as the normative and God-honoring pattern for marriage. See 1 Timothy 3, 2, 1 Timothy 3, 12, 
Titus 1.6, Ephesians 5.22 and 23, Colossians 3.18 and 19. As we continue to look at the biblical examples, we come to Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 verses 4 through 8 says, but before they lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you to do to them as you please. Those defending homosexual relationships want to make Sodom sin in hospitality. They base that on Ezekiel 16, 49, which says, and I quote, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Those making that case, though, often ignore verse 50, where it says, quote, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, end quote. That word abomination is mentioned repeatedly in Scripture referencing homosexuality and in the Leviticus passages that we will read here in just a moment. From the context of this passage in Genesis 19, we see the word no in verse 5 has a sexual connotation just as it does in verse 8, making this request a sexual request in nature. Jude 7 in the New Testament states, quote, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, some proponents of same-sex relationships will contend that unnatural desire or other flesh in Jude means angelic beings. But notice Jude states that the other flesh or unnatural desire were indulged in by surrounding cities too. And Scripture provides no record of angelic visitors in surrounding cities. The burden of proof is on those who make the claim. Was it a corrupt place? To say the least. Lot offered his virgin daughters to be abused by an angry mob. His daughters later got him drunk and slept with his father, creating two of the most perverse groups of people to ever walk the earth, the Moabites and the Ammonites. But of their many sins, no doubt homosexuality was one of them, and so much so that the name Sodom was used to connote the very action, to sodomize or to commit sodomy. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. The book of Leviticus provides several prohibitions against various behaviors that corrupt the purity of marriage. I encourage you to read the entire chapters, but for the sake of time today, we're only going to read the relevant verses. Leviticus 18.22 states, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13 states, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Questions arise. Is Leviticus still relevant? Doesn't it talk about mixed fabrics, planting crops beside one another, eating shellfish or pork? The New Testament does make all foods clean. The sacrificial system is no longer needed because Jesus fulfilled it. But that does not mean that every aspect of the law is irrelevant. The law serves no less than three purposes. First, it is a mirror to us that shows us our failures and points us to our need for a Savior. Second, It is to curb or restrain evil. And third, it is to grant guidance in how to live in accordance with God's will. 
While dealing with Leviticus is complicated and difficult, we recognize that Jesus came to fulfill the law and not to do away with the law. So while the ceremonial elements may have been set aside, that does not mean everything is rendered useless and that we have the freedom to do exactly the opposite of what the verses say. Jesus commented on marriage as well. In Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, and Mark 10, verses 2 through 9, they have similar words of Jesus. We'll read the record in Mark 10, 2 through 9. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In this passage, we see that the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about the law of the day. Jesus responded that divorce was lawful because of the hardness of your hearts. Perhaps this helps us understand that the Supreme Court decision did not make our culture secular, but it revealed the hardness of our hearts that already existed in our culture with the loss of a biblical worldview. Jesus responded that from the beginning, this was not the case. He did not grant the right to redefine marriage, but affirmed the record of Genesis and affirmed that God, not law or tradition, joined man and wife together. Accommodations based on sinfulness emphasize to us the importance of the grace found in the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' response also underscores the importance of presenting marriage as God originally intended it. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, some will contend that Paul knew nothing of a loving same-sex relationship and that Paul could not have known about sexual orientation because it is a recent development. This is an assumption that cannot be proven. But more importantly, it's bad theology. Let's remember that the Holy Spirit inspired this text through Paul so that it is described as God-breathed. The Holy Spirit is God, and God, by definition, is all-knowing. So an argument that Paul could not have known about sexual orientation creates problems for your understanding of the theological aspects of inspiration of Scripture and your doctrine of God. Some same-sex proponents will also argue that this prohibits straight people from pursuing homosexual relationships because it is one's natural inclination that's being discussed. Verse 27 clarifies that what was natural is men with women, and the shameless act was men with men. This style of interpretation or argumentation offers an unproven assumption as well, that they were born genetically, uh, genetically born homosexual. Recent scientific evidence of identical twins have demonstrated that genetics may be a small factor, if any at all, with less than 15% of identical twins, both bearing same-sex attraction. Additional studies, such as the Behrman and Bruckner study, conclude that environment was the determining factor in sexual orientation. That means we must be sensitive to the contribution of experience, society, abuse, exposure to sinful relationships that may influence someone towards a same-sex attraction. Even if science does eventually demonstrate that a person is born with genetic same-sex attraction, that does not change our theological position. We are all born with sinful orientations of one sort or another, which we must overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. Further, we do not affirm the label homosexual Christian because we would not affirm other sinful adjectives to define our identity in Christ. We are Christians who struggle with our fleshly nature and temptation, but those temptations do not define us. Our unity with Christ defines us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I have a slide for you that shows the linguistic connection between Leviticus 20:30 and the Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. You can see on the screen the linguistic similarities. Our Seneca-tai in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 could easily be the combination of Arsenos Cointin in the Septuagint, Leviticus 20, 13. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient and for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Here again, you can see the same linguistic connection with Leviticus 20.13. In 1 Corinthians 6.9, all modern translations link the translation of Malakoi and Arsenicates to homosexuality. 
The agreement of the leading linguist on the proper translation and connotation of these verses provides strong evidence of their meaning. Paul is Jewish born from the tribe of Benjamin, taught by the famous teacher Gamaliel, a Hebrew of Hebrews described in Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Paul most likely combined those two words from Leviticus 20, 13 to coin the word arsenicotai. Although we should not press it too far, you see that Leviticus may provide the linguistic background for understanding these New Testament passages. The other word, malakoi, means soft, effeminate, or the passive one in a same-sex relationship. This could be related to those who dress like women or to transgender men who act like women. But whatever all the meaning included in this definition is, the context gives strong indication that same-sex action is part of what Paul had in mind. Some make the claim that Paul intended sexual abuse of young children or prostitution only, but they offer no convincing evidence, as Paul could have chosen other words to clearly limit the meaning. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose words that indicate homosexuality. Let us remember, though, that homosexuality is but one sin in the list in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. It is a sin just like any other sin. And while we stand firm on the views of biblical marriage, we must not single out homosexuality as the unpardonable sin. People are not saved from homosexuality. People are saved from unbelief. Let me say that again. People are not saved from homosexuality. People are saved from unbelief. We must recognize that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are no better off, so we must maintain humility. At the same time, we don't defend our sin, we don't justify our sin, we don't embrace our sin, and we certainly don't make peace with our sin. We resist and overcome our sin through the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A few comments on these verses. These verses clearly demonstrate that the relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage represents the relationship between Christ and the church. That means biblical marriage represents the gospel itself. Marriage matters because the gospel matters. God ordained marriage as a visible picture of the gospel relationship, and in our secular culture, one of the greatest testimonies we have is a godly biblical marriage. So here at Cedarville, let's be known as being for biblical marriage and being for the gospel rather than being known as against any one particular sin. This may be hard as our detractors try to paint us into a corner. 
but let's not grant the premise of an antagonistic question focused on one distortion of marriage. Let's present the case for biblical marriage, for a biblical worldview, and for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a winsome, compassionate, and convictional way. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne above, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Genesis 2, we see God ordaining marriage, and in Revelation 21, we see the imagery of believers as the bride prepared for Christ. From the beginning to the end, our Creator has given marriage great meaning. Marriage is deeper than two consenting adults who love each other, deeper than just procreation, although that is part of the mandate, deeper than sexual intimacy, which some couples cannot have, and deeper than an emotion which may be here today and gone tomorrow. God designed earthly life to teach us heavenly lessons, and marriage symbolizes the gospel itself. That's why this is so important. It's a gospel issue. Right now, we live in a fallen world with fallen people, but this world is not our permanent destination. One day, God will wipe away every tear, every temptation will cease, hurt, abuse, pain, aches will be no more. Victory over our fallen nature does not come in this life, but in the next. Our great hope then is not in in embracing our sinful inclinations on earth, which include for some same-sex attraction or gender confusion. Our great hope is in Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins and the eventual establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. Conclusion, let me say to you this. Scripture is clear. God ordained marriage as one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life, representing the gospel union between Christ and the church. Not one verse in all of Scripture commends a same-sex relationship. Not one verse in all of Scripture commends a same-sex relationship. Not one verse in all of Scripture commends a same-sex relationship. Today we have looked at those which give you a biblical view of marriage. You cannot explain all of them away, even though some try. People may reject the Bible, the gospel, and Jesus, but they may not with integrity twist truth to say that the Bible supports same-sex marriage. As we move forward in our culture, we need to keep a few things in mind. Number one, we cannot expect non-Christians to live with Christian values. It is not fair for us to ask them to live with a value and belief system which they do not believe. Number two, in dealing with unbelievers, we must focus on the gospel and unbelief more than one fruit of unbelief which is simply the logical outworking of our sinful nature. 
Number three, sex outside of marriage and other distortions of marriage have been around for a long time. We must teach the beauty and benefit of biblical marriage. That's our obligation, that's our goal in this generation is to learn to defend and to teach a biblical worldview with a passion for the gospel because we love others and to demonstrate that love compassionately towards them. Number four, temptation or inclination is not the same thing as participation. We will walk with you through struggles and temptations, urging you to overcome the flesh by the power of the Spirit. My dear brothers and sisters, if you are struggling this morning with same-sex temptation, gender, identity, confusion, do not sit alone, do not feel isolated. Please come to us so that we can help you, so that we can pray with you, so that we can love on you. We are here for you. We all are broken, sinful people and have fallen short of the glory of God and we need the grace of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's no one here standing judgment over anybody else. We are all equal in our sinfulness before a holy and a righteous God. Number five, for most of church history, the church has been countercultural. We're just returning to what is typical. Number six, the early church never received legislative help from the government. All we should hope for is peace and the opportunity to present the gospel to all people. And we must contend for religious liberty and for the freedom to share the gospel, but that's not the end goal in and of itself. We serve King Jesus even when it's not popular. We do what is right even when others misunderstand because we desire the approval of God more than man, Galatians 1.10. Time will prove that we are on the right side of history, but we do not let that concern drive our decisions because the Jewish carpenter we follow found himself on the wrong side of public opinion as the crowds voted to crucify him. Instead, we worry about being on the right side of eternity. Did love win? Love won 2,000 years ago on a cross at Calvary. Love won and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love conquered the grave and love proclaimed that death has lost its sting. God defines love. Love does not define God or the actions of sinful mankind. We must remember that the Supreme Court can neither rule Jesus out of order nor overturn divine decrees. God is the perfect divine judge of the universe, period. There is no higher court of appeal. One day the final verdict will be rendered as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And until that day comes, let us be found faithful to stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come before you this morning, Father, we have difficulty sometimes in discussing hard topics and hard issues of our culture and understanding how to respond biblically with truth and with compassion and with kindness. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Father, I pray that of the words I presented this morning, if there's something that doesn't line up perfectly with your scripture, that everybody would forget it and not remember it all, at all. But Lord, if there are or truths from your word that we need to remember, Lord, help us to consider and to ponder those truths. 
Lord, give us the compassion that you had for the lost and for people. Lord, help us to weep for those who are broken and those who are lost and those who do not know you. Help us to have a passion to share the gospel with all people and to love them in a way that presents the truth compellingly, compassionately, and convictionally, Lord. God, we just want to serve you and serve you well. Our heart is to follow you and to please you. And Lord, that's not always easy. Our own sinfulness gets in the way. The sinfulness of the world around us gets in the way. And so, Lord, we ask that today you give us wisdom to navigate our pilgrimage on this earth in a way that pleases you and in a way that serves you well as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. God, for those who may be struggling with same-sex attraction or identity confusion, gender confusion, Lord, I pray that you would just put your arms around them and love them and show them the grace of the gospel and that you would help us to love on them and that you would help us to be a good support, bearing their burdens, one another, Lord, that, that they would feel so welcomed and so loved in our midst, Lord, that we would just represent the body of Christ in a way that demonstrates the same love you demonstrated on the cross. God, in our weakness and in our feebleness, help us to faithfully follow you and to do what's right before you. God, that's our prayer. Bring revival to us. Challenge us of our own sinfulness. Create in us a desire to do only what you would have in the way that you would have us to do it. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.